Welcome back to episode 30 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to our annual reading plan where we go through next week's Bible readings, we discuss the most interesting bits, and we ask any questions or we answer any questions that you might have about them. I do not believe we had any questions this week. So our readings next week um, cover, we're getting close to the end of Kings and Chronicles, and so we have a few chapters from there. Uh, the entire second half of, or two-thirds really, of the book of Isaiah, and then just a little bit in the beginning of Jeremiah. I'm not going to really deal with Jeremiah this week because we have enough to talk about, and we'll talk more about him next episode. Uh, But starting with the Kings and Chronicles passages, uh, so the good king Hezekiah dies, and his heir Manasseh, uh, who winds up being very evil, uh, and so he becomes the king, and the text says that he manages to lead Judah astray to do more evil than the nations conquered by Joshua. And so Manasseh in the book of Kings really represents a low point uh, for the kings of Judah. And I thought it was interesting, Second Chronicles chapter 21, we're given kind of a summary of the prophecy in Manasseh's day and age, uh, starting in verse 10. And we can talk about this in a second if you have more thoughts about it, Clayton. But I just thought it was interesting, you know, we'll I'll talk about Isaiah here in a minute. But just looking at Isaiah's prophecies and then this kind of summary of prophecy in that time, they're just very different, very different tone. And so I thought that was interesting. I don't really know what that means, just that there's a pretty stark difference between kind of what we're getting from Isaiah. Of course, there were other prophets around, but then um, and then what this says about Manasseh. Or even how this message in 2 Kings 21 can help us maybe shed different light on what we're reading in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. But then when you read the same story in 2 Chronicles 33, you'll find that there's a very interesting twist in Manasseh's tale that is not con- included in the book of Kings. And so 2 Chronicles 33 tells us that Manasseh is actually captured by, it seems, Assyrian military commanders, but then taken to Babylon uh, that's a little confusing because Assyria and Babylon were, I mean, two different places, kind of two different empires. But it it seems to be that before Babylon kind of became its own thing and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that, it was a vassal of Assyria, just like Judah was. And so for whatever reason, these uh, Assyrian commandos captured Manasseh, take, took him to Babylon. And then while in Babylon, Manasseh has a well, not exactly a come-to-Jesus moment, but a come-to-pre-Jesus moment and repents of all this evil that he's done and led the people in. So that when he comes back, he makes some changes and tries to to put the kingdom back on a righteous path, or at least Jerusalem. Because it seems that when his grandson, because his son Amon, there's really nothing to be said of him, he's assassinated after a few years, but his grandson Josiah, who is the final righteous king of Judah, uh, he leads you know, what you could call a religious reform, but really is a war against idols. Uh, and it's not just in Jerusalem. It encompasses the entire kingdom of Judah and also reaches into the northern territories and even across the river, which at this point uh, were not, you know, or hadn't, hadn't been Israelite territory in a long time. Uh, and so I think it's just interesting to think about you know, in Josiah's mind, and, and I think in the minds of those who wrote the Chronicles, that, you know, political borders, political affiliations are not seen as barriers to, like, the covenant obligation, and those two things can be different, right? So you don't necessarily have to be an Israelite or Judean country in order for the covenant to be applied to you and for you to still carry those obligations. So those are our chapters in Kings and Chronicles. Yeah, there is a lot here, as you said. 
Um, tell, tell us about, like, what was it that made Manasseh particularly evil? You mentioned that he's a low point. What was it that he did that was so low? Well, I mean, it seems like that Kings is drawing a comparison between him and the Canaanite nations that existed before Joshua and everybody showed up for the conquest. It says, uh, so he just starting in verse two in chapter 21 and Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, uh, which is another false god, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. So he followed Ahab's footsteps, and Ahab is the worst, or so, so to speak, the worst king of Israel, of the northern kingdom, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I put my name forever. Um... And then he, I mean, on top of all of that, he also didn't listen to the law of Moses. Right. <laughs> um, I, I have one more question. So I know, I think we've talked about it once before, but it is a, a awful enough thing. I think a lot in the prophets is going to be revisiting themes because the prophets revisit themes over and over and over again. So one of the things Manasseh does is he, he sacrifices his son in the fire. What was the reason that people thought to do that? Why was that a, a I mean, it's, it doesn't sound like it was a go-to. Like, oh, there's trouble coming. Find my son. We have to throw them in the fire. But it, it, it is strange to us that a person would ever even think of it. Because the God that we know sacrifices his son, right? But the, there is a whole, like, is, is that what this is about? Like, what's going on with the sacrifice of children in... By these, by these leaders or rulers. So I think that the, theologically, I think that we would understand that, you know, God in the garden promised Adam and Eve that a descendant, a child of Eve would one day trample the serpent. And so I think that from the very beginning, kind of the promise of, of hope and salvation has been tied to children and childbearing you know, and that's obviously carried through Israel's story. I mean, that's I mean, that's what the patriarch stories are about: is waiting on the birth of Isaac and then the birth of Jacob and Esau, and then you know, and all the way up until the birth of Jesus. And and so I think that yeah, for just from a spiritual warfare perspective, I think it makes sense. And there's no verse of the Bible that just says this outright, but I think it just makes sense for us to see that the enemy would want to you know attack. That the, that the vehicle of Yahweh's promise is also incredibly vulnerable, and that would be children and babies, you know. And we'll actually see this in some of the verses in Isaiah and the servant songs, you know, um, about, you know, we'll, we'll get there in just in a few minutes. And so I think that, yeah, like I said, on a theological level, I think that's part of what's happening is that the enemy is enticing people uh, to... I mean, what is more satanic in any society than to destroy the most vulnerable in order to get what we want? And our civilization stands guilty of that as well. We have a different framework around which we think about 
killing babies and taking advantage of the least fortunate, but we still do it. Um, more people are enslaved now than ever before in human history, you know, and some of that is just there's more people now than ever before. But I think just the even just the rate of, of uh, slavery is higher. So that's certainly worth thinking about. Um, you know, I think that that kind of on a cultural level, and we see this across the world. I mean, it wasn't just the ancient Near East in which people were sacrificing, you know, making human sacrifices. It seems that for the most part, there were there has never been a culture where that was like the immediate go-to, okay, let's start killing people, you know, to appease the gods. But that when you kind of see societies under intense strain for whatever reason, that's when you start to see human sacrifice beginning to happen. And so it seems like kind of a, just a general rule of humans is that, you know, and we've talked about this before, that that the the purely from the human end of things, sacrifices are intended to kind of uh, more or less to make the gods do what you want to answer your prayers, right? You're kind of pulling levers in the spiritual realm by uh, offering a sacrifice. Whereas for Israel, that was never really meant to be the case. The sacrifices were a response to the actions that Yahweh already took or kind of an embodiment or an action of what had already happened. You know, and so I think that for Manasseh or for whoever, I mean, we just talked about all the ways that Judea was under strain, you know, and under pressure. Um, And so I think that, yeah, to, to do that was a way of, they thought, of ensuring that the God would answer you favorably. And we actually see this earlier in the biblical story. There's an example, I think, in Second Samuel, where, I don't remember exactly where it is, but there's a story where the Israelites are attacking a city, and the king of that city sacrifices his firstborn, and then it mm-hmm. says that wrath broke out, and Israel yes. was defeated that day. And, uh, you know, again, why did the guy do that? Well, not because he wanted to, but because they needed to win. He needed to repel Israel. And so he did the, the most ultimate thing, you know, that, that you could do. Um, I suppose besides sacrificing yourself, but you can't win if you're dead. Um, you know, I think we even see this reflected in Micah from last week. You know, in the famous, some of the famous verses that you highlighted of like, shall I give all of these bulls and rams or 10,000 gallons of oil, or shall I give even my own son? You know, mm-hmm. and Yahweh's answer is no. <laughs> He's shown you what is good, you know, but to love justice or to walk mm-hmm. justly, to, to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. You know, so I think that's what's happening, that Manasseh, because they're facing, you know, what they feel like is such dire circumstances you know, that he was willing to, to sacrifice his, his firstborn, presumably, um, to the god. Well, I don't think it actually says who, but usually it's the god Molech um, that we, and we've talked about him before, because I think he starts to appear in Leviticus already, you know, that they're being told not to engage in that, or just to stay far away. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, in Second Chronicles, it says children. It's plural. Oh, right. So he sacrificed his children in the fire. Um that was an excellent answer, Pastor Ben. Thank you. All right, and then over to Isaiah. And like I said, we're we're tackling the uh, chapters 40 to 60. Uh, so I guess a little under half, actually, of uh, the back half of the, the book of Isaiah. And we see a pretty big pivot just in terms of the emphasis and the style and the content of the prophecies starting in chapter 40, the first words of which in English are comfort, comfort for my people. So that really seems to be one of the abiding themes uh, of these this last half. 
is that we see a lot of prophecies that are intended to bring comfort to the people of Judea, a lot of promises that are are kind of glorious, like this is what the future holds uh, for us, for the city of Jerusalem, for the temple. But intermixed in those things, there's also some very strong pleas and warnings um, against injustice and idolatry. Um, you know, so with the comfort element, we also see some really, I mean, comforting, they're comforting, but just some very comforting kind of images of God, a lot of several maternal, more maternal images of God as a, a loving mother kind of holding his people close to his chest. You know, how could I abandon you? You know, could a mother abandon her nursing child? Um, you know, with the, the promises of glory, we start to get uh, a lot of themes that are going to become more and more important as we go on. You know, we start to see Messiah language, the anointed one. We start to see references to new creation, which has definitely been something moving under the surface since the very beginning. I mean, the flood story is about new creation, but but then the actual phrase and kind of bringing those things to the surface begins here in Isaiah towards the end. Uh, and we also start to see this phrase, the good news, uh, begin to to crop up in Isaiah as well. Uh, I think most famously right here at the beginning in chapter 40, uh, but then throughout these chapters. And with the pleas and warnings for justice, you know, that, that's bound up with idolatry and the worship of false gods. And so we see throughout these passages as well, just these comparisons. Well, comparison to say that there is no comparison between the creator God and these idols. You know, we, we get a lot of kind of mocking... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Trash talk? No. Oh, man. It starts with an S, I think. Satire, maybe? I feel like there's another word I'm thinking of. But just this, yeah, just mocking, you know, idol worshipers in terms of why would you think, you know, if you are the one who creates this little statue and picks out his clothing and everything else, then suddenly you can ask it for help, you know, because you're its creator, Oh, the only other thing I wanted to say about these chapters at the beginning here is that we also start to see, and these the section of Isaiah is famous as well, just for what are called these servant songs, mm-hmm. and so just these passages where that begin to picture this mysterious figure that, in church history, is often referred to as the suffering servant, um, and all of these things, you know, Isaiah has been referred to as like the fifth gospel or like the Old Testament, New Testament, you know, mm-hmm. just because there's so much here that pretty nakedly, you know, for to a Christian reading begins to point ahead to what is coming with Jesus and, and to what is coming with with uh, the proclamation of the good news. You know, and we see that Isaiah is very important in the life of Jesus, that he quotes it constantly, that comes up in the Gospels. Paul makes extensive use of Isaiah in the book of Romans, uh, that it's a pivotal, you know, he quotes Isaiah at pivotal moments in that letter. Peter also uses Isaiah as well. And so we can just see I mean, it deserves, I think, the title, The Fifth Gospel, <laughs> you know, just because it is so foundational. Uh, so many of Isaiah's ideas here in the second half of the book are are just key things, key themes that are going to be continued to hit on throughout the rest of the prophets, but then also that we see kind of coming into a full flowering uh, with the, the life of Jesus and, and the apostles' letters in the New Testament. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to... Uh ask you about in here and i think we can we can let's start with idols before we get to the the servant songs so the obvious absurdity that we see all the way back from exodus chapter 32 where aaron takes gold from people and fashions a a bull and then they bow down to worship it right and they call it yahweh 
um, we see that that tendency in ancient peoples um, all the way through the, the biblical narrative here really drawn out as an absurdity, as you said, by Isaiah. But what what was the belief? Because we, if we were to fashion a figurine, I don't think that the average person would then assume that it has any power. Like, what was the belief, the connection between an idol and the deity it was supposed to represent? Uh, I think generally speaking, they thought that... So nobody thought that the idol was the deity itself. But they thought that it was... Representative is too weak a word, but that somehow when you were in the presence, that that maybe we could say that the statue, the idol, was a focusing, a focusing of the of the deity's presence or a focusing of its attention. So like you could be more sure that the god would be listening, that the god would be aware of what you were doing. You know, uh, that that the god's presence was with you if you were in the presence of this idol. Um, we. It's like, we don't have direct analogs to that, but I think we get it. Like, I think there's something about that that isn't necessarily wrong. You know, so like you think about photographs in modern society. Why do we keep photographs? Uh, You know, I think that part of that is certainly to remind us, but like, because it brings the people present to us in some way. It kind of calls forth the memories or the feelings of being with them. Not saying that at all that that's idolatry, that that's wrong, but I think that that is a... That is a form of, of kind of what's happening. Of like, okay, so we have it's invoking the presence of these people to us, yeah. even though they're not physically with us. So I think it's a similar mechan you know, mechanism's the wrong word, but it's a similar sort of way with I think idols, um, that they they invoke the presence and the power of the deity. You know, I think in some ways like branding, corporate branding is similar to that with us. You know, why buy a product that's branded over a product that isn't? Well, because somehow the presence of that brand name conveys either quality or status or honor upon us, right? Yeah. Like I have more honor because my computer has an apple on it, <laughs> you know, right. than some other person down the line who doesn't have an apple on their computer. Um, again, I don't, well, that's probably inching closer to idolatry. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think it's it's a similar sort of thing. Is that... So in Catholic churches and Orthodox churches, there will often be icons. Mm -hmm. Is the idea here kind of similar? I think the idea is similar. I think that's part of why Protestantism has at least been wise to, like, sit a little crooked from that. (laughs) Here's why. Because I think in Catholic, and I'm less familiar with Orthodox theology, but I imagine they have similar uh, thoughts, is that I know in, in Catholic theology, there's a huge difference between worship and veneration mm-hmm. you know so worship is only to the lord whereas veneration like the giving of honor and kind of the according of a special status that can can be given to the saints you know or or mary or whoever else and so to us it's hard because we don't really have i mean we do anyway sort of you have a picture of Menno Simons on your wall, you know john calvin john wesley we even protestants have figures that we revere no one is worshiping Menno Simons. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very glad for that. And he's very glad for that. But we're not even close, you know, to doing that. Uh, and But I think that, that, and I don't want to speak for the world's Catholics and Orthodox, but I think that they would, the way that they would explain that is to say that they're not worshiping Mary or the saints either. You know, that they're, 
they're uh, just giving them the veneration that that is that they're worth you know that they're worthy of for being the figures of such stature that they are. Now, icons of Jesus himself or of the Trinity, I think that's a little trickier, uh, and we may disagree about this. I know that that in Orthodox theology, my understanding of their understanding is that an Orthodox icon of the Lord or the divine. Nobody thinks that it's Jesus himself, and I'm saying this as your icon of Jesus is staring at me. <laughs> He's watching them. Nobody thinks that it's Jesus himself, but that there is a sense in which it is a window into the spiritual realm. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I imagine that will strike a lot of our listeners, you know, as as just a as an odd thought. And I think it can be hard. Yeah, I think it can be hard to untangle, you know. I mean, I suppose if we could say that an icon is like a more powerful version of what a photograph is, right? So you, I also see you have a picture of you and your wife on the, your desk. You know, you're not, you don't think that photo is Lisa, <laughs> you know, and you don't love that photo like you love Lisa. But there's a real presence, there's a real affection, there's a real stirring of good memories and things yeah. that happens through that photo. So we could say basically just a a bigger version of that happens through an icon. Yeah. Uh, and just to be clear, my icon of Jesus that Ben mentioned is not there because I share the Orthodox icon be- iconography beliefs just because it makes him like the photograph feel present to me as I pray. But the Orthodox thinking is pretty much as you described it. I think that was a good description, which is what they thought was happening with these idols and the gods that they were worshiping. Right. Yeah. But I think that, it, I think that in the ancient world, you know, they would say that, yeah, that they are worshiping. I mean, you're worshiping these false gods through their idols. Like there was no, it seems as far as we're able to reconstruct that it wasn't like they had this sense of the difference between veneration and worship no, that, no. that modern Catholicism right. or Orthodoxy has. Well, thank you, Pastor Ben. That was, that was good. Um, Isaiah talks a lot about, about Babylon. You've talked already a little bit about why that might be. Um, it does seem like this section, though, is focused on future events. We have mm-hmm. Cyrus, mm-hmm. we have Babylon, rather than Assyria being the primary primary elements. Even the servant songs are um, are part of that. And in describing particular practices that are going to be common in Babylon, which like the the magics that they're going to be doing, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you about the magics themselves in a minute. But we say a lot of the time that prophecy is usually not about predicting the future. But it does really seem like this portion of Isaiah is mostly future-focused. It's mm-hmm. not describing current events outside of the wrestling that Israel has with idolatry. It's frequently describing future events, either in what the Messiah is going to be like, which no one questions was a future event. Even the people that think there is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah acknowledge that it was written long before Jesus. Um, but the the there's definitely a future focus in this part of Isaiah. And I, I wondered if you wanted to speak to that a little bit. You know, I think I would I would want to nuance that thought about like the prophecy is not primarily about t- telling the future, because I, I mean a lot of it is is making statements about the future, but I think that that's always in service to what is happening right now, right? So it's it's not just oh God knows the future. Here's some detail. You know, it's like that's. That's not the point. The point is, in light of what's happening to you right now, here is the message that, that Yahweh wants to convey. 
you know, when we get to Jeremiah, I mean, we will see truly a, I mean, it is a stark difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know, they are doing two different jobs, you know, with their prophecy. And Jeremiah has a lot to say about the future as well, but uh, I'll, I'll, we'll save that for next time. You know, I wonder too, and I was reflecting on this and just reading the Kings and Chronicles passages alongside this, this section of Isaiah, that it, it, and I referenced this in my summary, that it actually kind of struck me as odd. You know, when you think about the, again, the prophecy that was kind of being told to Manasseh of like, stop, turn back, you know, judgment is coming. And there's a little bit, I mean, warnings and judgment is sprinkled throughout these Isaiah passages, but it's definitely not the main emphasis. And I wonder, and this is entirely my own thought, you know, and there's really no way to prove this, but I just wondered if you know, that the prophetic word to the king and to those in power was one of warning and judgment and threatening, you know, and then thinking through, like, who was Isaiah? Who was his audience? Who was he talking to? And just my thought that I was struck with is I wonder if that I, if Isaiah was more trying to address the common people who had no control over the direction of their country, you know, and many of whom were probably idolaters alongside the king, but many of whom... You know, there always are just like these hidden faithful Israelites that pop up, you know, when called upon. It's like, oh, there's 7,000 of us who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So I just don't know. I don't know if that if that helps explain the, the change or the difference in the in the tone is that Isaiah is, is trying to comfort the commoners, basically. You know, that like this disaster is about to unfold and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is not the end of the story, you know, and, and Yahweh's promises are going to hold true. And, and here is what that is going to look like um i don't know you know and, and so that that makes sense to me i it just does not make sense and i'm not saying this isn't true i'm just speaking as a reader of the bible to think about manasseh or amon you know or their evil counselors hearing these prophecies from isaiah and being like oh good uh-huh. <laughs> right. it'll all work out you know and then they they twiddle their evil mustaches you know like it's like this just does not seem to be intended for For the elite you know or or that early isaiah first half of isaiah is what he said to manasseh and amon you know the judgment and the and the wrath and Mm -hmm. you know and then that this is like a a switch over to the common the common folk again there's no you know that's just an opinion of mine that i was thinking about as i was reading this i don't know if that was helpful yeah i think so answer again (laughs) No, it was good. It was good. I don't really know what you're going to make of this next one. I don't really know what to make of it. I just thought of it as I read this time. I think the chronological nature of the reading plan causes us to notice certain things. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of texts in this portion of Isaiah where we have Yahweh talking about what he has done and how powerful he is in a way that we haven't seen since the end of Job. So the last few chapters of Job, we Mm -hmm. have Yahweh showing up. And describing the creation of the world and the insufficiency of man to be able to to understand what's happening. Over and over again in this portion of Isaiah, and I can I can give you passages if you'd like, but we have Yahweh making similar statements. And I'm just curious if you think that Isaiah and Job are in any kind of intentional dialogue. Like is, there, is Isaiah thinking about Job in any way as he's writing these portions of Isaiah? Uh... I don't know. I'd have to, I, don't, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, see, so, so the, I said, I have no thoughts. I have a few thoughts and I, I don't know if this is right, but it does seem to me that one of the things that's happening with Job is these statements about Yahweh, who he is and what he's done are being said to Job as a means of, so, 
So you need to you need to understand that you are mortal. You cannot affect the things of heaven. You can't even understand them. Um, and that's an important part of understanding our place in in the the relationship we have with Yahweh. These seem to be coming in connection both with talking about Babylon's magic and also talking about Israel's idols. And so again, both of them seem to be trying to grasp at things that are are beyond us. And so Yahweh, when he talks about how incredible he is, that's not just bragging. There's a point to it. He's reminding us of the futility of building a Tower of Babel, right? We, we cannot accomplish the things that we often think that we can accomplish. But I, I don't know that Isaiah had Job in mind. It just It's a kind of literature, and I'm sure there's a term for it, but I've, we've not really had much of it since Job, and Isaiah has a lot of it. I think it also, I mean, that, that all makes sense just again against the background of Manasseh, you know, leading the kingdom into the depths of idolatry. And, and again, especially after the kind of the quote unquote the high point with Hezekiah and the defeat of the Assyrian army, you know, through prayer, like, I mean, they did nothing that was not a mil. I mean, it was a military victory, but not because Judea was militarily stronger than the Assyrian army. I mean, they, they were desperate and they turned to God and he delivered them. You know, so you'd think that everyone would be like, oh, okay, so Yahweh is mighty and great, you know, and, and again, you see this turn that Manasseh leads away from that. You know, I, I think it's similar as well, just in tone to like the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, that the, that happens, the Israelites sing a song, and then the next chapter they're complaining that they're going to starve to death. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and I think just those things are just deeply reflective of how... Uh, short-sighted and and uh, silly we are, you know, that we can we can witness something like that happen and then very, very shortly afterwards basically forget, functionally forget, you know, what we ourselves have witnessed. Mm-hmm. And even in our own, you know, in our own lives, like, so we don't, we as modern Western Christians, you know, we don't go burn incense on, you know, on altars with little statues on them anymore. But, you know, I think that it's it is worth it's always worth trying to consider like what do we turn to in a time of real crisis like what do we actually turn to to save us you know and i think that there's i think that we want to be careful here because i think this line of thinking is how different like sects of the of christianity have come to the conclusion that you should like reject medical care you know because we'll we'll just trust god you know and so mm-hmm. that's not uh, that's not the direction that I'm headed, you know, but I think to think through, well, you shouldn't reject medical care, but, but to know that like, that is not the end all be all, like we can do everything we can in our human power and we can do miracles, you know, nowadays through medical science and technology, you still might not be, you or the, per- you know, that it still may not work out. Like we can't, yeah, that we can't we can't rely ultimately on our own powers and abilities, as good as those might be, and good they are, but that we can't they just won't they won't actually save us in the end. Yeah, I think it's hard. We can look back on the past and see their idolatry very clearly. Uh-huh. It's very difficult to do it to ourselves. Yes, and uh, I, you know I think that because idol the, the worship of false gods always makes sense within your cultural frame of reference, you know? And so I think that that's just a, that should, there's just a lot of food for thought there, I think for us. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. 
So there's a couple of uh, these servant songs, and one of which in particular is very famous, Isaiah 53, but it's not the only one. It's, it's one of several. And these are taken as very clear descriptions of the Messiah, of Jesus. And we see a lot about him in those servant songs. My, my question is this. So when we get to the New Testament, and I know that we're not there yet, but it's, it's something I think that is an easy stretch for us. We get to the New Testament, the, the, the Jewish leaders are not looking for a Messiah that's like Jesus. And yet we see the humble character of, of the Messiah in these servant songs in particular. What had they, how did they miss or what were they looking for that was wrong that they didn't recognize in, in Jesus, at least some of the characteristics of the, the Messiah in these servant songs? I don't know that I ask that well, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I do the servant songs ever refer to the person as the Messiah, like using the word Messiah, yeah, like it refers to Cyrus as the Messiah. No. Well, because I suspect that that might be like the bottom shelf immediate answer is that the servant songs are just not explicitly about the Messiah. They didn't. They didn't read them as messianic. Yeah, and so I think that. Yeah, I think that that, that it, might, it may just be as simple as that. <laughs> or that they felt like, and, and I think this is true now, I mean, as far as I understand in like modern Judaism, these passages in Isaiah do not have the weight or the emphasis that they do in Christianity. We, you can think about that in a variety of ways, but it's just the, the fact is, you know, they're not reading these things or, very, you know, even necessarily very familiar with them like we are. I mean, you ask any Christian to just, try and quote whatever scriptures they can, many of us will probably come up with some of these verses from the servant songs in Isaiah. You know, and so I, I and I know that kind of the, the the tradition of interpretation has been that outside the church, you know, that these songs are really referring to Israel itself, you know, or even potentially a king or a future leader, but one that is sort of acting as a singular representative of Israel. Again, as Christian readers, we look back and go, of course, that is true, and that's what Jesus did. But that the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day may have more thought that since they had gone through the exile, had come back from the exile, you know, and had kind of reestablished themselves as a kingdom, that the, the servant songs had, quote-unquote, already happened, like that it was kind of a, a past kind of closed case. Like, we did that, we suffered, we came back, here we are. Mm-hmm. That would be, I think, what I would say to that. Yeah. They were, they were in many ways, looking for a different kind of Messiah, mm-hmm. right? The militaristic version. The servant songs really do describe a person who is coming in part to be a light for Gentiles, which was just not a focus. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, caring about sins and and forgiveness of sins and iniquity. And that's also just not what was on their mind. When you are oppressed well, by a foreign government, you are not thinking so much about a savior coming for them. Right. Well, and I think that they, many thought that the sins, their sin, the sins of the nation had really been dealt with. Like that that's what happened in the exile, you know. And so they that that was over with and now it was just time to reconquer you know and and be victors which is why they were waiting for a, a kind of warrior david mm-hmm. and we do see those pictures too in daniel and other places sure sure least. no that's yeah. absolutely right uh well and i think that also again we're not 
when we get there, we'll talk more about it maybe, but like in Matthew, you know, when the angel tells Joseph that the child will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, you know, we read that and it's heartwarming of like, oh yes, you know, but I think that again, first century Jews would have heard that and been like, wait a minute, but we, I thought we already were saved from our sins. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, Aren't and we I, in the covenant? Yeah. Uh-huh. And you see Paul wrestle with this mightily in kind of his... Which, when we get to Paul, you know, it's too bad we'll only have, like, three weeks to talk about Paul. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> but, like, he he meets Jesus, struck down, you know, off his horse, blinded for a few days, you know, and then goes off into the desert for years. And what he does in the desert, we don't know because he didn't really write about it. But, like, he took the entire Old Testament and, like, reformulated it around the reality of what happened with Jesus which is just it's just, it's an amazing on its own it's just an amazing intellectual feat of what of what Paul did uh obviously under the inspiration of the holy spirit but you know just that that Paul i mean he knew the word and he probably knew most of it by heart if not the whole thing mm-hmm. um but just the the reformulation of the problem right that Israel thought that the problem was one thing and then the coming of the good news actually reveals that it's not that thing or the problem is a little bit of a much bigger issue yes. you know and, and that i think is again part of the struggle that i think israel's leaders had you know when when jesus came and and told them actually you still need to be saved <laughs> what uh-huh. we are children of abraham yeah but again we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves it's we'll not bad for us to get excited but, about jesus no that's true that's true well, and I, would, I think maybe the last thing I would say is that, I guess this is more of just a, more of my first answer, if this, these aren't necessarily explicitly messianic, is that I know like that there were other parties, other kind of groups of Jewish people in the first century who were expecting like more than one Messiah, that I think that they were expecting like a David Messiah, but then they were also expecting an Aaron Messiah, like a priestly figure. Mm-hmm. And... These are also not very, I mean, well, there, there's some priestliness in them in terms of the, especially in 53 with the sacrifice and, and, you know, we were wounded for his transgressions. But yeah, it just seems like Isaiah is pointing or seeing something that doesn't quite fit any of the categories that any of them were expecting. You know, that the Messiah would be like David, but wasn't a second coming of David. And the Messiah would be like Aaron, but wouldn't be a second coming of Aaron. And I think the truth is, is that we, and I think, again, this is what Paul did, is you flip the whole thing around and go, actually, David and Aaron and Moses and everybody else were like the Messiah, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And then when he showed up, we suddenly get, then we can look back and understand the truth of all of these things rather than starting from, you know, the uh, the leaders and patriarchs of the past and then looking ahead. I mean, I'm not... You know that that was that's all that they could do until Jesus came. So I'm not blaming anybody for that, but um, I think that helps us understand just the the lack of recognition when Jesus actually came. Absolutely. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I am both very awake and half here. It's at the same time. It's kind of fun. Who knows what's going to happen? Summarize us. <laughs> I just wasn't sure if you were done talking. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't find out until after I've finished talking. (laughs) I don't find out.